Uh, There's a famous picture of President John F. Kennedy sitting at his desk in the Oval Office. Pictures of presidents at his office was a a very common thing to happen. But on one particular day, Kennedy's son was sitting at his father's feet while he worked. And as someone was taking pictures, his his son opened up the panel on on the front desk and he peeked through it. And that picture would become hugely popular. It was the first child that was born to an elected president in 80 years. And it was just one of those sort of endearing photos that showed the the bond between father and son. It showed that, that his son had access to his father despite the demanding job that his father had. This photo would become popular a second time after Kennedy's assassination. But this time, it didn't fill people with joy. It filled them with sadness. The intimacy and access that John Jr. had was was tragically, cruelly stolen from him. It was heartbreaking that this young boy would grow up without his father, without that connection. Paul is nearing the end of his letter. He has taught a range of topics that, that point to the supremacy of Christ in all things. And one of the most important truths that that he has taught in this letter is this truth that we are united. As Christians, we are united with God. We have union with God. From chapter 3, verse 3, we are hidden with Christ in God, raised to new life in Him. Dear friends, this connection that we have with our Heavenly Father, this connection, this union that we have with God cannot be severed. We are one with Christ. We are a new creation that is united with God because of what Christ did on the cross. Paul has fleshed out some of the implications of that profound truth. We put to death our sins. We clothe ourselves in righteousness. We put on compassionate hearts and love. We do everything in the name of the Lord. Wives submit to their husbands. Husbands love their wives. We've looked at all the implications of that truth. And so as he writes the final portion of his letter, how would Paul sum up the joy of this union that we share with God? He will end this letter in a similar way than how he began the letter. In chapter 1, he described how he prayed for them. And now he asks for them to pray for him. You see, our union with God means... That we can talk to Him. And He hears us. When we pray, He actually hears us. We are intimately connected to God. So let's study together this request that Paul makes of the church. Because in it, we get to see this amazing privilege that we as Christians have to be able to communicate to our Father. And we see sort of a, a progression in this text. It starts with a a sort of a generic instruction for prayer, and then it moves to a very specific request about the proclamation of the gospel. And then from from that point, he then turns and sees how that that prayer request then applies to them. He sort of makes a a logical connection that we'll get to, uh, to see how that prayer request applies not just to himself, but, but to the church as a whole. And so we get to see sort of this relationship between prayer 
and the preaching of the gospel that is crucial. There's much here for us to learn and apply. So I have a sort of an application for us in each of those sections of this scripture that will help us both in our prayer life and hopefully ultimately in, in our evangelism too as we seek to do what, what Paul uh, is espousing to do. So application number one, really simple statement, but devote yourself to prayer. Devote yourself to prayer. So the first imperative that Paul gives here uh, is continue, or in the, the NASB, or the Holman both use the word uh, devote, which uh, in context I think pref- is what I prefer as it communicates better what Paul's asking them to do. Uh, that word is a, in the Greek is a compound word, meaning um, to endure or be steadfast. And then a, a sort of a, a preposition is added to that to make it a compound word that intensifies it. So you could say to be courageously Persistent is a good way to translate that. Continue steadfastly. Devote yourself. Be courageously persistent in prayer. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Uh, Jesus told uh, a parable in Luke chapter 11 that I think communicates with a a sort of a picture in our mind what, what Paul is telling us in this verse when he says, Continue steadfastly. Uh, in the parable, I, I won't read the whole thing. Uh, I'll kind of summarize it and then kind of read the, the main part, the, the point of it. But, but in the parable, uh, this man goes to a friend's house at midnight and he asks him for some bread. That man had had a, an unexpected guest come in to his house and he didn't have enough bread for him. And so he goes over to his neighbor's house, who, who's a friend, and, and he bangs on his door at midnight and says, please, do you have some bread so I can give to my guest who's, who's gone on this, this long travel and he's, he's weary and, and the neighbor says, basically, go away. My door is shut. My kids are sleeping. Like, <laughs> leave me alone. I'm not helping you. But then listen how Jesus sort of describes the end of the story. This is what he says. This is Luke, Luke eleven seven. He says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be open. Jesus said, because this man was persistent, the man helped him. And then he applies that principle to prayer. We have this amazing access to God. God hears us. He knows the intentions of our heart. And yet, we are to continue in our prayers, to be persistent, to pray and to pray and to pray and to pray. Devote ourselves to this task. Don't give up on praying. Pray continually, habitually, with perseverance. That's what Paul wants for this church at Colossae. And that's what I want for our church, to be a praying church who continues in it steadfastly, who perseveres in it. I think if most Christians were, were honest with ourselves, we know that our prayer life is lacking. Day to day, our prayer life usually consists of short prayers right before meals and maybe a prayer in the evening before bed. And that's about it. Maybe ten minutes a day. And so we must devote ourselves to this practice. And you may ask, well, what do I pray for? Look what Paul says that we must do alongside this devotion to prayer. He says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That term... Translated here in the ESV as 
being watchful. Uh, that, that Greek term is used throughout the New Testament to describe the attitude that we are to take concerning the second coming of Jesus. To, to be waiting, to be watching. There comes with that, that, that word a sense of mindfulness, of alertness, of anticipation. And so with our prayer life ought to come a watchfulness both before our prayer and after our prayer. Watchfulness to see the needs in our own lives, to see the needs in others' lives so that we know how we ought to pray. And then we see watchfulness in, in, in how God may answer your prayer. To look to see how God is working, how He responds to your prayer. And so how often do you intentionally watch for the things that you pray for? I consciously seek to find the things that you devote yourself to prayer and to find how God may be answering them. And are you watchful for how God may be answering your prayer? Do you expectantly wait in faith for the answer to your prayer? I have this bad tendency to pray almost generically in such a way that almost tries to sort of protect God's honor in case that prayer isn't answered. Instead of like praying specifically for something consistently for a long period of time, while I, I wait and I watch and I, I long to see God answer that specific prayer. I mean, the picture here is, is this passionate, specific prayer that we actually believe God will do. It's like when Hannah was, was praying to God for a child. And, and you remember the, the, the priest Eli comes and he sees Hannah just, just pouring herself out to God and, and he sees this woman so distraught and he, he assumes that she's drunk and finds out indeed she was she so desired a child that, that she just laid herself bare before God believing in full faith that God had the power to, to open up her womb she prayed a bold specific prayer and how often do we pray with specificity and boldness we must do both these things. We must pray like this, and then we must be watchful for it. So we devote ourselves to prayer, being watchful, and then we sort of see the heart attitude that we are to have as we pray. He says, with thanksgiving. That's the fifth time in this letter that Paul has mentioned this heart attitude of, of having thanksgiving in our hearts towards God. We are to be thankful that God answers prayers in accordance with His will and according to His purposes. It's a theme we see throughout Scripture, seen in the prayers of the psalmists, seen as Jesus as He gave thanks before meals. Thankfulness marks our attitude as we pray. And so do you pray with a sense of entitlement? I deserve this. God owes me this. Or with thanksgiving. When even in difficult circumstances of, of times of suffering, we're told that God is near to the brokenhearted. He hears the oppressed. And so we can, we can pray with thanksgiving. Be thankful always. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So Paul gives them that sort of generic instruction concerning our, our prayer life. And knowing the power of prayer, he then turns his instruction into a, a, a request to pray for him specifically and for a very specific purpose. A, a request 
that I would say you should apply to your own prayer life as you pray for me, as you pray for missionaries, as Audley did earlier, and others that you know that communicate God's Word. And so the, the second application here would be to pray for the proclaimers of Christ. To pray for the proclaimers of Christ. So Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter, but he was still on mission despite being in prison. He was still making Christ known. And he needed prayer to continue doing it. So he requests this of them, picking back up in verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Recently, one of our shut-ins that I was visiting uh, asked me if there's anything that he could do for the church or for me. And, and this is how I responded to him. I told him to please pray for me. And I meant that. I value that. And there's this temptation to think that, that prayer is what you do when you like, can't do anything else. And so we, we have this attitude, well, at least that shut-in, it's, I mean, it's so nice since he can't do anything else, well, at least, at least he can pray, right? At least he can do something. Dear friends, prayer is not just something. It is everything. Paul begins this letter with prayer, telling them how he is praying for them. And while he sits in prison, of all the things that he could ask the church to do, he prioritizes prayer. Pray for me. It's power and prayer. Charles Spurgeon was showing a visiting friend his church before the evening service. Spurgeon, who led many to the Lord, led many to become mature believers, who trained many pastors. His friend asked him how he managed to maintain the interest of the people in the work for, for such a long succession of years that, that he was in ministry. And Spurgeon replied, he said this, he said, It is owing to my heating apparatus. Come and I will show you. He took his friend to the door of a large room in the basement of the church and quietly opening it, he said, There it is, my heating apparatus. It was the evening prayer meeting in which were gathered 1,000 people to pray God's blessing on the service which was to follow. And for Spurgeon, as he prepared to teach God's word to them. And Spurgeon once said that he would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. Spurgeon knew what Paul knew. Paul realizes that his words are powerless apart from God using them. And so he says, pray that the doors are opened for me to preach the word, to declare Christ, to, to pray for me as a, to help me know how I ought to communicate, to make clear to them the gospel. And there's a clear connection between prayer and evangelism. So consider just for a moment the implications of this prayer request that Paul makes. Paul asked them, to pray for open doors. That's language seen several times in the Bible concerning evangelism and ministry. We read in 2 Corinthians 16, he said, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door 
for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So don't, don't miss this, friends. Paul is saying, pray for these kind of doors to open. What that means is, is that there are opportunities to share the gospel that will present themselves as a result of your prayers. Because you have devoted yourself to praying for the proclaimer of the gospel, for praying for open doors for them, there will be doors that open. I mean, that's mind-boggling to me. God plans to use our prayers, to use your prayers to open doors for the spread of the gospel. Paul asked them to pray that he is able to make his message clear. In other words, he he wants you to pray for his, his preparation, for his delivery, that which will help the listener understand. Let me just tell you, friends, I love it when people text me or tell me, Pastor, I prayed for you today as you studied God's Word and and prepared to deliver it to us. That encourages my heart. Your prayers impact, according to this, the understandability, the clarity of the message delivered. That's amazing. Okay. So if you don't understand my preaching one particular week, That means you don't come to me and say, Pastor, I don't understand your preaching. You look at everyone else and say, I didn't understand Pastor Brent's message. That means y'all didn't pray enough. Of course, I say that jokingly, but understand that your prayers actually do make an impact. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Paul then makes sort of a, a logical jump from them praying for his evangelistic efforts to them now considering their own communication with, with unbelievers, their own evangelism. So Paul's been on mission, proclaiming the gospel as a missionary and a preacher. He's not calling them here to become preachers, but he is calling them to proclaim. So his exhortation in connection with, with what he has just told them tells us that we ought to the last application here, become a proclaimer of Christ. Become a proclaimer of Christ. Evangelism for you does not stop at simply praying for missionaries and pastors, for others who proclaim Jesus. Evangelism is meant to be a part of the, the Christian walk, of the Christian faith, no matter who you are. And so Paul has asked for prayers for his own evangelism, and he turns to them And he says this, verse 5, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is a logical jump from, from how he is communicating to outsiders to now how they are communicating to outsiders. Outsiders here in context are those outside the church, those who do not know Jesus, those who are not Christian. In our context here in northern Kentucky, in this area, that's, that's roughly 75% of the people that you see. The, the most recent statistics of, of Boone, Campbell, and Kenton County, 75% of them are unchurched and unsaved. If they were to die today, would spend eternity in hell. Paul says, look at the outsiders. Walk in wisdom towards them. 
In other words, Christians should, should govern their conduct with unbelievers on the basis of biblical wisdom. Well, how do we do that? I mean, wisdom is one of those just really broad topics in the Bible, isn't it? It's always helpful when you're studying a, a, an epistle is if he uses a, a term more than once in the book to go back and see how he has used that term throughout the book and that can help you understand exactly what, what he means. And so what has Paul taught already in this letter as we've studied about wisdom? Well, he said in Colossians 3.16, he said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Back in chapter 1, Paul said that he became a minister to make known the word of God. And then he went on to say this, he said in verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we, he may present everyone mature in Christ. And from there he exhorts them not to be persuaded by false teachers, by plausible arguments. He says it's a warning ultimately against false teaching against the world. And both of those cases where he, he talks about wisdom are centered on the Word of God. And so I believe what Paul's communicating in light of the context of this book is, is to say, become wise. Become mature through knowing the Word. And then you will go live wisely with the outsiders according to the maturity that you have gained from the Word. And so in how you communicate the truth with them, wisely communicate the truth with the outsiders. Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so it's a wisdom in knowing, ultimately, how to communicate to the fool. And Paul says to do so graciously, seasoned with salt. And I'll come back to that more in a moment. Wisdom is also, in light of all the, the false teachings he has been, been warning against and, and, and in context here, wisdom is also how you resist the wrong influence of the world. And Paul has spent quite a bit of time in discussing this danger as it relates to false teachers. There's a sense of caution that we take when communicating, when being with outsiders, with those who do not know Jesus. There is a real danger in being with outsiders that you become the one who is influenced by them, rather you influencing them. And that's why Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. And that means that your closest friends, the people who you trust the most, who impact you the most, should be Christians because there is a real danger of you being influenced by them. And I've seen that happen when a Christian develops a close relationship with an unbeliever and this slow fade begins to happen. The Christian begins to make compromises, small little disobediences here and there as they fall into the same sins of, of those that they have befriended so closely, going further and further against their own conscience until their conscience is scarred and you don't feel the weight of your sin anymore. You know, when I, if you remember, when I came in, on a Sunday morning, I had this huge thing wrapped around my thumb because I had sliced it open on one of those mandolin uh, cutting boards and just cut off a big chunk of my, my thumb. You can look at my thumb now and see that there's a big scar right there. And where that scar is, it's like numb. I mean, you can poke it with a tack and I'll barely feel it. And the, the Christian that makes those little disobediences 
That's how their conscience becomes. It becomes scarred so that you don't feel the weight of your sin any longer. It becomes dull. And over time, you end up um, like someone like Demas in the Bible. Demas, who originally was described as this seemingly very strong Christians working alongside the apostles. And then you read this in 2 Timothy 4. Said Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Demas was in the world and he fell in love with it. He fell in love with the world and he abandoned Christianity. He forsook Jesus. That's the danger when we communicate with outsiders. And so we have this tension, right? We are supposed to be in the world. We're described as lights in the darkness. We ought to have relationships, friendships with unbelievers. But there's also a danger there. So Paul says to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. He says making the best use of the time. Catch that, the implication in light of what Paul has just said. That means that the best use of your time in part is to devote some of it to evangelism, to declaring the mystery of Christ, to use Paul's language, making it clear. It's, it's devoting yourself to praying for the salvation of souls, for praying for, for people who, who are proclaimers of the gospel and spending time becoming a proclaimer of the gospel of Christ. You're told... The way to do this, the attitude with which we approach it, back to verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I would summarize that by saying, learn how to speak to people in different stages of life. See each person as an, an individual. Be gracious, be kind. as you share with them the truth. The gospel, just by very nature of its message, will offend people. It will cause anger in people. Part of the gospel is to understand sin and that we are condemned already by our sin. That's an offensive message. You know, Jesus said in John 7, that the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. That's what Jesus did. He, he went around and testified to the world that your works are evil. And shared with them the good news. Exposing one's sin, that's a hard message. It's a difficult message that may cause hatred. And so we must make sure that as we share that message that we must share, we must make sure that we are gracious in our speech, that we are kind. Let the message itself be offensive, not the way that you speak. Let your speech always be gracious. Let your speech be seasoned with salt, Paul says. That is, let it be persuasive. Let it be effective speech. Meet people where they're at and communicate to them the most important truths that they will ever hear. You know, we've, at this church, since I've been here, we've done two evangelism trainings that have helped people understand how to communicate the gospel. If you've missed them, or if you still feel like you don't know how to share the gospel, let me tell you, it would be my joy 
to sit down with you and help you understand how to share your faith, how to communicate the gospel to outsiders. But typically, most of the time, that's not the problem with people in sharing their faith. The real issue, in my experience, is willingness and boldness. Willingness and boldness to to say that one phrase that will move your conversations with outsiders, with unbelievers, to a gospel conversation. And saying those words is not hard, but boldness in that moment is. Now what do I mean when I say that one phrase? I don't have like a formulaic particular phrase in mind. Just any statement that gets your conversation to talking about spiritual things. We're scared to death to do it. I'll just give you a recent example in my own life. Um, our minivan has been having some problems with our airbag system. And so I've, I've been having to take it back and forth to the car shop to, to get it worked on. And uh, I've gotten to know the, the person at the desk who sort of manages it. And I've got to talk with him many times. I don't know how many times I've brought it in now, maybe six or seven, to try to solve this problem. It's, it's been a frustrating experience. But I've gotten to, to know uh, JT, who is the, the guy at the, the desk. And, and throughout some conversations, we, we talked about his family, we talked about his kids, his wife. And eventually I, I asked him, well, you know, JT, do you go to church anywhere? And he said something to the effect of, no, you know, we, my, my wife grew up Catholic. I, I grew up in a, this Protestant church. Um, but, you know, we don't go to church anywhere. We don't really believe that, you know, anymore. And, uh, and so here was kind of my phrase to turn it into a spiritual conversation. Simple phrase. I said, you know, I go to church down here at Living Hope Baptist Church. Could I share with you what we believe? You want to know what he said? Yes. Sure. I would love to hear what you believe. You know, people, in my experience, in talking with unbelievers, people are hungry for meaningful conversations. In a fake plastic world, in a broken world with hurt and pain because of sin, most of the time people are actually longing for a deeper conversation. And if you would just have the willingness, the boldness to say that phrase, whatever that phrase may be in your particular conversation, to move your conversation to, to spiritual matters, people appreciate that conversation. They will open up to you. Maybe not every single person, but you will be surprised at how many people are longing, are looking for those kind of conversations. They are living in brokenness. They do not know Jesus. They are living in a broken world, and they have brokenness in their life. And friends, you have the answer to that brokenness. Are you willing to say that phrase? Are you willing to declare the mystery of of Christ with a gracious, seasoned conversation. Become a proclaimer of Christ. Walk wisely in the world. See the dangers that are there as Paul warns, but also walk boldly. Pray for it. Like seriously, don't pass that by. Like, like pray, devote yourself to prayer and then go do it. Be a proclaimer of Jesus. Proclaim the good news that Jesus died for our sins, that He rose from the grave and offers eternal life for anyone who repents and believes in Him. Let's pray. God, would You help us as we leave this place this morning?
to prioritize prayer in our lives. Knowing that prayer genuinely works, that you use our prayers, you plan in your sovereign purposes to use our prayers to bring about the salvation of souls. To bring about blessings in our lives. To help us. God, help us use the access that we have to you, that, that, that gracious gift that you have given us to be able to, to speak to you and, and you hear us. God, help us devote ourselves to that and then, and then help us be doers of the word too, to, to not just pray, but to, to go and proclaim as well. God, it's by your spirit that we are bold. And so, God, we thank you that you have sent your spirit that enables us to do this task. Help us.